I was thinking about uh, just how uh, Jesus has um, has come down uh, from heaven uh, to be with us. He's God with us, Emmanuel, and uh, how, how kind that is. And it's such a contrast to other faiths where uh, the believers, the adherents, are, are reaching up towards heaven, never uh, experiencing the depth of love that uh, God crossing uh, boundaries uh, to to come to be with us, and uh, and uh, it's it's an amazing thing that Jesus did that, but it's not the first time. And one of the things that um, when I was preparing for this talk, uh, I've been in Genesis a lot, and one of the things that has struck me is uh, God's response to our failure, and uh, it's it's seen really quite keenly in um, and beautifully uh, in in Genesis chapter three, and and then again in, in chapter four with with Cain, uh, where God seeks out uh, Adam and Eve after they have failed, after they've disobe- disobeyed him, after they foolishly have chosen their own wisdom over God's wisdom and uh, so that they could be like God's. And, um, uh, and God sought them out. Where are you? Where are you, he says, knowing perfectly well where they are and gently trying to coax them back into relationship with them and then just uncovering them and redeeming them in that particular moment and, uh, and so that they can have relationship. And there's such gentleness in the way he approached them. And it's the same with Cain, right? Cain, who's offering the, the Lord did not regard. Um, and, uh, and he knew that uh, Cain was suffering uh, with great anger and jealousy in his heart against his brother. And... Um, before he, he actually kills his brother, he says, why, are, why is your face fallen? Why? Just do better next time, right? But God, to, for God to cross that boundary and to be with Cain, again, just kind of shows this pattern where God has a habit, and he does that for us too, right, through his spirit in believers. And it's just a, it's an amazing act of love and for something that we should be truly, truly grateful. So... Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna go down again uh, into the canyon uh, that I spoke about last week, and um, and to look into some amazing caves. Uh, they're filled with uh, with jewels and other really cool stuff. The, the title of this talk is uh, "Genealogies Are Cool." So. Um, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, you'll remember, uh, for those of you that weren't here, I, I passed out this. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually a, it's called a photo mosaic. It's a, you might have seen something like that. It's not, that's the first one that was done of Louis Armstrong. And it's a, um, it's a, it's a picture within a picture. It's like made up of multiple pictures, right? So a mosaic is small little tiles, usually on a floor, and those little tiles go to make 
uh, up a bigger picture. Uh, that's what they, the ancient way of doing mosaics with a photo mosaic. Um, it's tiny little pictures, and each of those little pictures are pictures of some time in Louis Armstrong's life, right? So it's, uh, it tricks the mind into, into you seeing old Satchmo himself right there. Um, uh, but it also, if you were to contemplate it, and you actually had the understanding of what those little different parts of his life uh, meant to him, maybe there were significant parts where maybe he got his first record label or his first public performance, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it causes you to reflect, right? Uh, to, we, scripture uh, asks us to meditate on his word day and night. Uh, and and we're to do that, and it's because uh, scripture can be uh, can be difficult to understand, uh, and the more time that we spend in it, the more we get out of it. So um, we we made the analogy that the Bible is really kind of like this photo mosaic. Uh, of, it's like a photo mosaic of Jesus, right? And uh, that all of the I think one of the things that we believe is is that. Um, the Bible is a unified story that all points to Jesus. And um, that's not just something that we say and hope it's true. We can actually point to things. Uh, and the more that you meditate on Scripture day and night, uh, the more that you will understand uh, the Proverbs and the sayings and the uh, wise things that are in it and, and the riddles that it talks about. So uh, let's dive in. We are going to talk about uh, biblical uh, genealogies. I've given you this handout, um, and we're going to refer to it uh, throughout. Uh, it uh, hopefully will help you. It's, it's, uh, it's a little bit complicated, uh, and uh, this is more of a, an academic talk than it is a pastoral like uh, sermon. So... Uh, it is what it is, and I, I hope you enjoy it. So, um, but uh, like I said, we're going to talk about biblical genealogies, and you're going to like it. Okay, um, you're going to like it, uh, it more than like those Brussels sprouts that maybe your mom made you eat, right? Uh, or whatever, whatever your Brussels sprouts would have been like my worst. Um, uh, now I eat anything, but uh, there were times where my my mom forced me to like you can't leave the dinner, dining room table until you're done. Yeah, so that that never ends well for anybody. Uh, but um, you know, biblical genealogies are something that you know you, you just kind of have to get through uh, because really, who are these people anyway? And uh, they have really strange names, and and why I have no idea why they're there. I don't even know how to find out why they're there sometimes. And, and I actually, <clears throat> I used to like them because uh, it allowed me to claim to read large passages of the Bible without really having to put up any, any, any work into it. And so that's, you know, that's not really good. But um, it allowed you to skip over and say that you read six chapters and feel good about that. So... Um, uh, so, you know, we kind of feel like these genealogies, there's nothing to see there, right? And, uh, but that's not true. Um, it turns out there's a whole lot. Uh, and 
it turns out that the biblical story is truly enhanced by uh, these genealogies. In fact, they're, they're, they're critical to understanding uh, the biblical story. And, and that's, uh, that isn't really what we should expect, right? Because uh, the Bible is that unified story that all points to Jesus, and there's no wasted parts. Uh, it is God's word. It's perfect. It's infallible. And we're, we should be grateful for that. And so I, uh, I've been having a blast learning about these genealogies, and I hope to share that with you today. So we're going to look at uh, genealogies from the beginning of chapters 1 through 11 and see how they fit into the larger story. And then we're going to look at the genealogies from Matthew and Luke. Just very quickly, actually, I'm going to let you look at them in the end um, so that you can see how they connect, but I'm, I'm mentioning it. Um, and if I'm doing this right, it will prove the thesis that uh, about the Bible being a unified story. So to tee this all up, we need to look at Genesis uh, 3, 14, and 15, which, as you'll recall, is, um, uh, is after the fall. It's the time uh, when God is pronouncing a curse upon the snake. And as I'm sure you remember, the serpent has lied to Eve, and they've succumbed to the temptation to rely on their own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And uh, God has, uh, in the cool of the evening, entered the garden and discovered what has happened. Um, Now, in reading the story, I have to ask you, um, has anyone noticed that there's a talking snake in this story? Has anybody met a talking snake before? I, yeah, I haven't either. Um, it's important to remember, okay, and I think it's important to respect the people who, uh, when these, these biblical writings were, were written, to respect their intelligence. They're, they're smart people as well. They, had, they haven't heard of a talking snake either. So I just leave that there for you, but I, I want you to... I, I feel like it's really important not to engage in this chronological snobbery about thinking that people from the Bronze Age really are are just very simple and and dumb. They're not. And you look at this. You look at this uh, biblical uh, these biblical passages, and you see uh, incredible uh, beauty, uh, incredible uh, use of language and creativity that exhibit an intelligence that is um, off the charts. It just is. And so it's important that we, we remember that, okay? All right, so let's jump into, uh, I'm going to read for you Genesis 3, 14 uh, to 15. And it's, it reads, uh, The Lord uh, God set to, said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust uh, you shall eat all the days of your life. And this is the key part that we're going to focus on, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so there's a little... uh, Figure one here, which in your handout, that's 
this one here with the stick figures, okay? First of all, I didn't do any of this. Uh, drawings or, okay, so I have to, I need to confess that to you all. That I'm borrowing this stuff from uh, actually the Bible Project. And, uh, but it's a, good, it's a good representation of this passage, right? You can see that uh, you've got a woman, and you know, you, if we understand enmity as, as hostility or maybe war, uh, there's there's a there's hostility uh, between the woman and the snake, and there's hostility between the seed of the woman, her descendants, and the seed of the snake, right? And then we learn that someone we don't know who, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the snake. Okay, so you see that? So that's the pictorial representation of verse 15. I hope that, I hope that is helpful. It's helped clarify that. And John Salehammer, who's a, um, who's a biblical scholar, he's a, I thought uh, his analysis of this passage was, was helpful to me. So let me share it with you. Uh, quote, at first in verse 15, the enmity, which is understood as hostility, is said to have been put between the snake and the woman, and between the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman. But the second half of verse 15 states that the seed of the woman, and notice it says he, will crush the head of the snake, and notice it says your head. Right? Though the enmity may lie between the two seeds, the goal of the final crushing blow is not the seed of the snake, but rather the snake itself. His head will be crushed. In other words, it appears that the author is, is intent on treating the snake and his seed together as one. What happens to his seed in the distant future can be said to happen to the snake as well. This identification suggests that the author views the snake in terms that extend beyond this particular snake of the garden. The snake for the author is representative of someone or something else and is represented by his seed. And when that seed is crushed, the head of the snake is crushed. Consequently, more is at stake in this brief passage than the reader is first aware a program is set forth, a plot is established that will take the author far beyond this or that snake and his seed. It is what the snake and his seed represent that lies at the center of the author's focus. With that one lies the en enmity that must be crushed. If one looks at the passage within the larger scope of the purpose of the Pentateuch, much more appears to lie in these words. It seems likely that the author intends these words to be read as programmatic and foundational for the establishment of the plot and characterization of the remainder of the book. In the narrative, to follow, there is to be war or enmity. The two sides are represented by two seeds, the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman. In the ensuing battle, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Though wounded in the struggle, the woman's seed will be victorious. 
there remains in this verse a puzzling yet important ambiguity. And this is the question for the rest of the Bible. Who is the seed of the woman? It seems obvious that the purpose of the verse 15 has not been to answer that question, but to raise it. The remainder of the book is, in fact, the author's answer. So before we look at the genealogies, I want us to look at the literary pattern of Genesis 1-11. to And it's in these patterns that we can get a better understanding of the purposes of genealogies. And that is contained in figure 2. So if you would look at figure 2, okay, uh, this, that's this figure right here. <coughs> and uh, there really is a, an amazing uh, structure to these 11 chapters. So if you look at this, he's got it color-coded so that the creation events are in blue, and they're, they're labeled A, A prime, and what's after A primes? A second? Double prime. Double prime. Thank you. I knew I knew And then uh, in the Bs, okay, which are light orange or orange, uh, we have uh, a failure and, the, and uh, the failure of the next generation. And then in the Cs, which is what we're going to be focusing on, are the genealogies. And the genealogies are divided uh, between the generations that are chosen and the generations that are not chosen, right? And we can, when we look at those, the non-chosen are the ones that are the seed of the snake. And the ones that are chosen are the seed of the woman. Okay, that's what I intend to show. That's what I think this shows. Okay, so... Um, so it goes, basically, if you look at A prime, or A, A prime um, you've got a creation and blessing event, right? Which is creation of the sacred cosmos from the chaos waters and the humages, human's image of God and blessing and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? That's what it says, right? And then we have Adam and Eve's failure. And then in the next generation, we have Cain's failure. And then it happens again, and it gets worse. You have, uh, you have this added uh, uh, catastrophe that is multiplied, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. It gets worse with Lamech, and then it gets worse with the sons of God, and then we have the flood, right? That's God's remedy. That's right there in the middle. Uh, that's the A prime, I guess, or a double prime. Now that's the decreation. That's God starting over. That's a God erasing. Uh, uh, that's his act of severe mercy. And then at the end, uh, we see um, Abram coming again as the new humanity, new blessing. He's commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth again. So there's these repeated patterns that we're seeing, where you have a creation, a failure, a failure of the next generation, a non-chosen line, then a chosen line, and increasing rebellion, and recreation, and, uh, and then a sin and failure, and non-chosen, and then chosen, and recreation and blessing. So if we look... Um, 
at this, it's really, uh, it's very instructive to understand how these genealogies fit into this broader story. So um, these symmetrical patterns are created by the dense repetition of key words that indicate the thematic arguments at work in the narrative and show important comparisons. And the repetition of the key words, we miss a lot of that because we don't know Hebrew, and I don't know Hebrew. Uh, but the, the Hebrew, you got to remember that the, um, these texts were read aloud, right, to congregations or to groups of people. And the way that they read and understand or hear and understand the stories and retain that information is through the use of repeated words. And, the, you know, the best... The best example I can think of, or, or an example I can think of, just using uh, the Hebrew, is um, the word uh, Adam, right? So Adam is a proper name, uh, the husband of, of Eve, but it's also Adam, uh, which also is human. It means human. So when you see it outside of uh, the context of the, the creation story, it's talking about a human, not a person. And it's a generic. And, and Adam comes from, he was made from the dust, right? Which is Adamah, right? So you're, you're starting to hear we've got Adam created from the Adamah, right? And then he, his, the blood, our blood, is called Adam. So your uh, so that's your life, right? We talk about the the life. Uh, don't uh, when uh, Cain uh, was killed Abel, the uh, God said to Cain, "I I can hear the blood of your brother cry from the ground, right? The dom cries from the the or the the dom cries from the Adama, right? So you're getting this use of repeated language." Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, so it's really, like when I talk about not looking down on um, our brothers from 3,500 years ago, uh, they, they truly have uh, an amazing um, ability to use language in a way that was perfect for their audience. So um, the, the episodes uh, called from these Hebraic uh, traditions. So that was just kind of a little parenthesis. But uh, the episodes culled from the Hebraic traditions of early history were conceived in two matching sequences, Genesis 1 through 6 and Genesis 6 through 11. Each one of these sequences describes the manner in which humanity was removed progressively from the realm of God, whether it was the Garden of Eden or the Flood, in which he initiated, initiated fraternal and hence human strife, Cain and Abel, and then Noah's sons, then divided into tribal and national groupings, so Canaanite and Shemite genealogies, which come later, and the table of nations, then attempted to restore his divine nature or gain access to the divine realm, which is Babel, but was foiled in this by God, the sons of God and the Tower of Babel. So in each case, it is the consequence of this hubris which launched God into a decision to focus his relationship with humanity 
on one person. In the first case, Genesis 6, God destroys mankind, allows it to survive through his choice of Noah, but almost immediately recognizes that his measure was a shade too drastic. In the second case, distressed by man's repeated attempt to unbalance the cosmological order and no longer allowing himself the option of totally annihilating mankind, God finally settles on one individual, Abram, uproots him from his own kin and promises him prosperity in a new land. So if we look at the genealogies of uh, Cain and Seth, which are found in chapters 4 and 5, the biblical authors give us a hint about what is is going on in the birth stories. So uh, in the Cain line, Eve declares, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So that's Genesis 4.1. The details of the story are sparse, but we find that Adam and Eve give birth to Abel. Abel is a sheep herder and Cain is a farmer. Both brothers bring acceptable sacrifices to God, but Abel's gift reflects more care and sacrifice than Cain's. And so God, quote, has regard for Abel's sacrifice, but not for Cain's. God, in an extraordinary act of mercy and compassion, tells Cain, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God's offer to Cain of a second chance was rejected by Cain, and he kills his brother. He tragically repeated the error of his parents and chose to listen to the serpent rather than God. But if we compare Eve's statement regarding the birth of Cain to her statement after the birth of Seth, uh, after Abel is uh, killed, Eve is more aligned with the cosmic order. And, And, quote, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To, this, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's Genesis 4, 24, uh, or 25 through 26. So if we compare these two passages... Uh, Cain, the birth of Cain and the birth of Seth, uh, which sets the death, it kind of sets the destiny of these two genealogies, right? We see Eve in the first case boasting of her generative, her uh, generative power, with God kind of helping, right? Uh, but she was the primary, right? She was literally, I have created man with the Lord. So, in other words, I stand equally uh, with, the rank, with him in the rank of creators. It's, it's, a, it's a statement that I think the original listeners would have uh, understood to be uh, a statement that's out of place, right? Um, thus, in the opening moments of Chief's, uh, chapter 4, Eve's Pride is subverted by Cain's action. So, right, it, set thing, it sets things in motion, uh, so to speak. And then at the end of chapter 4, in stark contrast, Eve recognizes the gift she has been given in Seth, and, she over, and it's by, from God. 
and she overturns her presumptive words about Cain. Thereafter, Enosh is born to Seth, and it is said that at that time, the people came to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, they were worshiping Yahweh. Right? So you can just kind of see the lines of the two of the two brothers there. One is the line of the snake. One is the line of the woman. We still don't know who the snake crusher is, but it's the paths. The paths have been set, right? And so that and that's the question we're trying to answer: is who is this this snake crusher? So uh, these parallel genealogies start to tell the story, and it's complicated because both Cain and Seth come from the seed of the woman, right? You get that? It says it says the seed of the of the of the of the woman is going to crush the head of the snake, but they're both the, they're both from the seed of the woman. So what's going on here, right? Well, let's keep going, right? So let's look at figure three, which is a side-by-side comparison of the lines of Cain and Seth. Okay, that's this one right here. So we have parallel, you notice that we have uh, parallel genealogies. They're both 10 generations, uh, and they both end with three sons. And one is the chosen, and the other is the non-chosen. One is the line of the snake, and the one is the line of the woman. Okay? So there's several observations to make here, and... and, um, and I've given you a quote from John Levinson uh, there uh, below this uh, figure three that I've given to you there. So I'm just going to read that. The effect of the whole of Genesis 5. So that's, that's basically um, the genealogy of Seth. Uh, is to replace Cain with Seth as the second father of humanity. The human race continued only through the lineage of Adam's third son, Seth, the descendants of his first son, Cain, presumably having perished in the flood. Here we see, again, a programmatic principle laid out. As the people of Israel and its royal and priestly dynasties are not derived from their family's firstborn, but from the late-born sons. The people are descended not from Ishmael or Esau, but from Isaac and Jacob. The royal line is derived from Jacob's fourth son, Judah, and David and Solomon, none of whom are firstborn. The priesthood is derived from Levi, Jacob's third son, and the priests' third and fourth sons, Ithamar and Eliezer, not Nadab and Abihu, the first and secondborn. In Cain and Seth, we can see that the same principle pertains not only within the chosen family, but with universal humanity as a whole. Humankind is descended not from Cain, but Seth. Not from Adam and Eve's first son, but third. In that case, Abel's death in the field is not final or irreversible, for upon it follows his assumption of the exalted status of ancestor of all who live. God's favor at the altar leads to more than fratricide. It leads also to the survival of the human family through the younger brother. So first is not best, 
And I think we all know that, right? And just in terms of the law of primogenitor doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't control. And, and that's something to think about and ponder. Why is that? But let's keep going, okay? So the genealogy in Genesis 4, 17 through 24, which is represented in the column to the left, leading from Cain to Lamech, which is basically leading from one murderer to another, is, by contrast, it's an anti-genealogy, okay? It expresses through the list the whole sequence of human decisions undertaken outside the order established by God at creation. The use of the genealogy to link the two murderers is highly ironic, right? So you have Cain, who uh, kills Abel, and, and then you have his descendant, uh, Lamech, who brags about killing 70 times 7, or 70 plus 7. Uh, and he has two wives, right? So their actions in bringing life to an end contradict the whole logic of, this, of genealogies, which normally record the orderly continuation of life from one generation to the next. The irony, in turn, highlights a fundamental theme in Genesis, that human sin stands in profound contradiction to the created order of God. Cain's and Lamech's murders subvert the very nature of a genealogical succession which rests on the command to be fruitful and multiply. Significantly, the genealogy of Seth, which reasserts the created order, appears after the subversion of the genealogical order in chapter 4, so that the created order has the last word. Um, Daniel DeWitt Lowry, who's a biblical scholar, states, comparing the two genealogies in chapters 4 and 5, that's Cain and Seth, confirms our suspicions regarding the negative light cast on the first in contrast to the positive of the second. The author juxtaposes these two genealogies for communicative effect. A genealogical doublet, whatever the origins of the two lines, the text of Genesis 4 and 5, and particularly the recurrent similarity in names, invite an examination of their relationship. The text attaches Cain's Enoch to a city, but Seth's Enoch moves beyond human culture to the world of the divine. Both Lamechs play pivotal roles in their lines, and both have statements recorded in the text, which interrupts the genealogies. But Cain's Lamech utters a cry of vengeance, and with that terminates his line, while Seth's Lamech expresses hope for a better life for his descendants, and with that introduces the offspring who will continue his line and play a role in trying to fulfill his wish. So if you look at figure four, okay, so that's the second of the stick figure drawings. So you've gone from this... to this one, right? This is a drawing of where we are right now, right? So you have, em you have enmity or hostility between the, the woman and the snake and the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. And then you have uh, the line of Seth, which ends in worship of God, right? So you've got Enosh, and it said after Enosh, the people began to call on the name of Yahweh. And with Cain, uh, his murder becomes multiplied, right? 70 plus 7, right? It's, it's, uh, and he's bragging about it. And he's got two wives, and it ends in death. And it, it gets multiplied again, 
right? When you have a cosmic rebellion, when you have the sons of Elohim come down from heaven, they, they look at the, the women and they take the women, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complete and total disaster, right? And God, we're going to talk about that, but that's what that is. So the connection between a future seed of the woman and the victory over the snake, and this is, this is, this is kind of cool because the, you know, this connection is exactly how the apostles uh, saw uh, the victory uh, of Jesus over death. And if you look at 1 John chapter 3, verses eight, uh, 7 and 8, it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. He's of the seed of the snake. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy with his foot, he's crushing the head, the works of the devil. So you see the, the Apostle John making that connection back to John to, to Genesis 3. And this is why one of the reasons why we're able to say that the Bible is a unified story that all points to Jesus. But it goes on, and we're, you know, we're not losing an iota of the coolness factor here. I just got to tell you, uh, it just gets better and better because the, from the line of Cain and the line of the snake, we see this cosmic rebellion, which I mentioned briefly. <coughs> the evil from the murderous line increases, and chaos and dysfunction rule. The Bible says that murder and death were everywhere, and the land was in ruins. We can see this when comparing the ideal version of creation against the evil choices of later generations. The author's use of repeated words as hyperlinks back and forth invite the reader to compare and contrast God's ideal against uh, the later rampant and ever-increasing evil in the land. And uh, we have, we've traveled from the ideal in uh, Genesis 1 uh, to this, this horrible um, uh, time when... Uh, there's violence everywhere, and that, that's if you look at at, um, at figure five, um, you can kind of see this comparison here. If you look at that, so I've set out the the different. That's this one right here. Um, so the language in these different passages. Uh, it signals the fall of humanity. So if you look at uh, Genesis 1, uh, 1 through 2, 3, and, and you know, that's, that's the creation story. And God said, God saw that it was good, right? He says this seven times, and God saw that it was good, right? And then in Genesis 1, 28, he gives them a blessing, uh, and he, 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 God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. That's his command and blessing right there. And if you jump down to um, Genesis 6, 5, and 6, 11, and again, I, I, I ask you to remember that this is a congregation that's having this read to them, right? So they need mnemonics to help them to remember the story. But he uses very similar language. The author uses similar language. He says, then the, the Lord saw... Uh, instead of that it was good, that wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, 
and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was evil continually. And then you jump down to 6.11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Right? So that's, that's, that's where we're at. And this has all started from Cain, who kills Abel. And then we get Lamech, who's killing 77. And then, it's, and then we've got the sons of God coming down out of the heavens and seeing that the women were good and taking them, right? So that's what, uh, that's what uh, the middle section here is about, right? So you compare and contrast the uh, Eve's fall, right, and the key language. And you, you can see this throughout Genesis too, right? Whenever you get this uh, saw, the word saw and took in close proximity to each other, it's a clue it's a it's a tell that it, it's hearkening back to to the fall language, right? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from uh, some of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband. And then similarly in Genesis six one. Now it came about when mankind began to multiply in the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, and this is believed to be the heavenly host we're talking about here, right? The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. It's like they're the fruit uh, on the tree. And they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. And that's the the penultimate action right before the flood. That's what leads to the flood and violence and ruin because humanity and the heavenly host have now rebelled against God and have caused this uh, huge rebellion that God feels it's necessary to eradicate. So uh, if we're contrasting... um, the line uh, of the woman, and we look at the seventh generation uh, at Enoch, and uh, the narrative the, the narrative kind of stops there and focuses on Enoch, and it's said that he walked with God, which uh, we know from other references in the Old Testament means that he, his thinking and his behavior uh, was in line with God's will. Uh, he walked with God. And instead of the usual refrain refrain, um, that he died, it just says Enoch was no more and God took him. So now we're we're looking again at the the line of the seed of the woman. Enoch's way of life embodies the communion with God that Adam and Eve experienced before the fall uh, but forfeited in the garden. Sort of notice this inversion of taking, right? So Adam and Eve's taking of the fruit uh, results in their loss of walking with God. While Enoch's walking with God re- results in him being taken, right? So uh, very instructive there for us. Finally, we arrive at Noah, uh, whose name literally means a rest. Uh, and that is how his father pronounces his birth. It says, quote, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So the first genealogy is recursive, and then it backtracks to Shem to restart his line 
uh, from uh, ten, Genesis 10, 21 to 31, which had, had split at Peleg and, and Joktan in the fifth generation. In so doing, this genealogy provides a frame around the rebellion of Babylon and the scattering native narrative. However, the literary form of this genealogy also imitates in the 10 generation genealogy from Adam to Noah, and in so doing, acts as a frame around all of Genesis 5 1 through 11 26. And I've got a, a picture that's going to kind of help clear that up. But the, the literary form of the genealogy matches closely with the genealogy in Genesis 5 but without the, the death notice, which you know it says, and he died for each generation. Instead of emphasizing death as in chapter 5, which beats the drum by repetition, this genealogy emphasizes birth and multiplication leading up to the, uh, the one generation who is barren, namely Sarah. So it goes to Adam, or Abram. The genealogy uh, of the sons of Noah sits in the middle of this large text block which links together the 10 generations uh, from Adam to Noah in chapter 5 and the 10 generations from Shem to Abraham who is uh, Shem being Noah's son and this is the main thread of the narrative focus which is tracing the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 so the genealogy in the middle of this sequence chapter 10 is the table of nations from the sons of Noah this text traces the non-chosen lineage of Noah's three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, and their lines up to the division between Joktan and Peleg. So it just kind of stops there. And then uh, the story comes in about the uh, Babylon. And then on the other side of the non-chosen line lays the rebellious disasters of the generations of the flood and Babylon. So these low moments of the story are framed by God's preservation and gracious selection of one human line that will bear the promised seed. So let's take a look at, at figure six, which is the last one. Uh, and you can see um, we've got, uh, if you look in the box there, the first box to the, the left, you have this um, genealogy which starts in Genesis 5.1, and then you have ten generations from Adam to Noah that ends in and the three sons, Shem, Han, and Japheth. And that's the chosen line. And then um, uh, we have that. Then we have the story of the son of God, the sons of God and the flood. So we have that violence that's going on. And then we have uh, the generations from Noah to the 70 nations, uh, the, the table of nations, and Noah's three sons. And this is the non-chosen line. And then we have, uh, we have the story of, the, of Babel, right, which is, again, another cosmic rebellion. Right? Instead of the sons of God coming down uh, to create havoc in the world, it's man building a city, building a tower, and reaching up to God. Right? So they're, uh, they're all in one language, and it's a, it's a cosmic rebellion against, uh, from, from man to God. So it's just the opposite direction of of uh, the sons of God coming down. And then we have this, the generations. Uh, these, it's introduced by these are the generations, and we have ten generations from Shem to Abram, which ends with uh, the three sons, uh, Abram, uh, Lot, and is it Haran? 
I think it's Haran. So that's the chosen line, and it goes through Abram, right? So if we look at the genealogy, and I'm going to let you do this on your own because uh, we're, we're done with time, but look at Luke 3, okay? And um, that takes the, gener- the genealogy in Genesis 1 through 11 and brings it back from the time of Jesus all the way to the line of the woman. So I know that's a lot, and I'm sorry for that. Um, but we've seen that these genealogies are really uh, very important to the biblical story. They convey much more than birth order, and it's kind of like finding a decoder ring. You kind of it unlocks a, a much larger story uh, that really um, augments and um, does a great job of, I think, helping us understand uh, the biblical story in greater detail. And it's just, I think, it's just wonderful. So. All right, I will leave it at that and